Welcome to the third and final part of the series Making Music. The previous two lectures have dealt with musical openings and unfinished music, so finally to musical endings. You'll have noticed that I'm not in Barnard's Inn Hall in Gresham College. Coronavirus restrictions confine me physically to Hammersmith and electronically to a small oblong in the right-hand corner of your screen. But in my mind, I'm full size in Hoban, addressing my faithful, regular audience. I do hope you're all keeping well. Let's begin with one of the most celebrated musical endings in classical music, that of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. As discussed in the first lecture in this series, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has an extremely famous opening. Da 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 da! But here's the powerful and insistent ending. The ending of Beethoven's famous Fifth Symphony. Here's another big Beethovenian ending, the close of the Eighth Symphony. the final bars of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 8. And here's the ending of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is known as the Choral, because uniquely for an early 19th century symphony, Beethoven introduced a chorus into the final movement. But as you've just heard, for the last few bars, Beethoven didn't actually end with the chorus. The Ninth Symphony ends with just the orchestra. Moving on over a hundred years, one of the best loved choral works of the early 20th century is William Walton's dramatic and colourful Belshazzar's Feast. Although Belshazzar's Feast features a large choir throughout, Walton didn't use the chorus for the final bars, as you can see from the last page of the vocal score. The chorus stops with the word Alleluia on the top system. But that was deemed unsatisfactory by the Atlanta Symphony Chorus in 1989. Sir William Walton had been dead for six years by then, so the Atlanta Symphony did what they thought Walton should have done all along. They added the choir for the last chord. 
the conductor Robert Shaw improving on the ending of Walton's Belshazzar's Feast by involving the otherwise redundant chorus during the final chord. To return to Beethoven's ninth, what is noteworthy about the very end? And I mean the very end. Examples of this gesture occur at the end of over half of Beethoven's 16 string quartets, numbers 2, 3, 4, 6 and 12 through 16 if you're counting, and the ends of the 2nd, 3rd, 6th, 8th and ninth symphonies, as well as at the end of the 3rd piano concerto. And even within Beethoven's symphonies, this gesture occurs. For example, at the end of the scherzo of the Eroica symphony, at the end of the second movement of the Pastoral symphony, and at the end of both of the first two movements of the Choral symphony. It's this. A significant amount of Beethoven's music finishes with a rest augmented by a fermata, a pause, an elongated rest. What's the meaning of that elongated rest? On the face of it, it's rather a willful and self-important marking. Let's hold the audience in the palm of my hand for a little longer. Or is it more to provide symmetry, to offset the material that precedes it, to balance the material on the page rather than to stop dead? And should the conductor reflect that pause in performance? I would say yes, but if an audience chooses to applaud before I've held that rest for long enough, I'm not going to complain. Beethoven didn't invent the end pause. There are a few examples in Haydn and Mozart, but Beethoven did make a feature of it. The pause infused rest at the end of Tchaikovsky's Pathétique Symphony is definitely warranted, albeit retrospectively. Here's how this valedictory movement starts. Tchaikovsky died nine days after conducting the premiere, and the hush after the Sixth Symphony's performance at a memorial concert three weeks after Tchaikovsky's death made sense of that enforced silence at the end of this emotional swan song. Here's the last page of the symphony.
descending to the depths of the orchestra and the depths of Tchaikovsky's soul. The fermata end pause is parodied on the gravestone of the Soviet composer Alfred Schnitka. A bar's rest with a pause on it, but also marked fortissimo, very, very loud. And in death, Schnitka's memory is indeed very, very loud, in my mind at least. Let's return to where we started, with the end of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Beethoven's grandiose endings are the stuff of legend, prone to fill a dozen bars where other composers might feel that a couple would do, Beethoven owned the early romantic orchestral ending. In particular, the final bars of Beethoven's 5th, 8th and 9th symphonies are massive. Yet the French composer Hector Berlioz found the ending of Beethoven's 5th symphony tiresome, and the Russian landowner and music lover Alexander Ulibyshev described the ending of the fifth as filled up with commonplaces of military music. Beethoven's bombastic endings led to a merciless parody at the end of Desiccated Embryos, a 1913 piano piece by the French avant-garde composer Eric Satie. The closing bars feature a series of end gestures in improbably repetitive and comedic combination. Amusingly, the actual ending is impossible to divine, except in retrospect, thereby adding to the uncomfortable comedy value. Eric Satie, parodying what he saw as overblown romantic endings. Let's go back a long way to find out how music used to end. In the first millennium, when the musical content of plain chant was being codified, these single line melodies were grouped according to the note on which they finished, the so-called final. And those four finals, D, E, F and G in modern parlance, defined the mode to which each melody was assigned. Here's the chant Viderant Omnes, the gradual for mass on Christmas day. It starts on an F and finishes on an F. In other words, it has the same final as its starting note. It begins Viderant and it ends so it starts and ends on the same note. It starts there and it ends there. But turning to the following Christmas Day chant, 
This chant has a different final to the starting note. It begins, Alleluia, and it ends, Ram. The final is a degree higher than the starting note. It starts there and it ends there. The important point is that a piece of plain chant is classified by its ending. So musical endings in plain chant were deemed to be the most important identifier. Let's return to that viderent omnes chant, the gradual at mass on Christmas day. When polyphony emerged as elaboration of plain chant, pieces for two voices ended on perfectly consonant unisons or octaves. In the case of viderent omnes by Leonan, an octave. The pre-existent plain chant is heard in the lower voice at a stately slow speed, and a freely composed part is added above. Leonan worked in Paris and was composing in the late 12th century. As you'll hear, the music finishes on the interval of an octave. perfectly consonant octave ending. A few years later, another Parisian composer, Perrotin, presumably a pupil of Léonin, made an elaboration of the same piece of plain chant for four voices. One voice part sang the original plain chant, and three voices were added to it. Here the piece ends on an open fifth, a bare chord with a stereotypically medieval flavour. Peritans viderent omnes ending on the chord of the open fifth. That piece was possibly composed in the year 1198. Three centuries later, the Renaissance saw the fleshing out of final chords, but the change was a gradual one. To demonstrate, here are three pieces from around the year 1500 showing the different ways of finishing a piece of music. Here's a bare fifth ending at the end of a Nunc Dimittis, attributed to Josquin des Prés, but more likely by Pierre de la Rue. This ending paints beautifully the words in pace, in peace.
an early Renaissance piece ending in medieval manner on a bare fifth. Here's an ending by Johannes Ockerhem, another composer whom we these days classify as Belgian. It's a prayer in honour of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and it ends on a full chord with a stately minor third. Ockerkem's Intemerata Dei Mater, ending on a full chord, including a minor third. And now, here's an ending by the Spanish composer Cristobal de Morales. This setting of the Magnificat ends with a full chord, including a major third. the ending of the eighth tone Magnificat by Morales. A grand major key ending. This type of early Renaissance harmony paved the way for the impressive endings of Beethoven, admittedly with a few evolutionary steps in between. Moving on a couple of centuries, in the last decade of his life, J.S. Bach set about composing a musical manifesto which became known as the Art of Fugue. A collection of fugues and canons on a single subject, the Art of Fugue lay unfinished at Bach's death, but it remains a pinnacle of contrapuntal achievement. From the very opening, the first fugue demonstrates clarity, balance and control, so it's surprising that the ending of this first fugue, Contrapunctus I, was revised by Bach after he'd copied it out neatly by hand, as you can see at the top of the page. Here's Bach's original ending to Contrapunctus I. Even having introduced two dramatic silences within the final cadence, Bach still thought that Contrapunctus I didn't propagate closure, so he added four and a half bars. This coda also contained a further statement of the fugue subject in one of the inner parts. It is, it turns out, a stronger and more symmetrical ending than Bach's original version, and I find it reassuring to know that even Bach could change his mind. So here's the first fugue of the Art of Fugue with Bach's improved ending. That definitely brings closure to the piece. Closure didn't seem to matter to Stravinsky in piano rag music of 1919. 
its unrewarding wonky jazz peters out in the mid bass register. Stravinsky himself playing his own piano rag music, a damp squib of a musical ending if ever there was one. A more satisfying, quiet ending is that of the 1853 B minor piano sonata by the Hungarian composer Franz Liszt. A tour de force of romantic piano writing, the ending is mysterious with unstable B major chords given finality by the shortest possible keystroke on the lowest B of the piano. As you can see at the beginning of this last line of music, some of this ending was an afterthought. Observe that squeezed in bit at the beginning of the line. the spacious ending of Liszt's piano sonata, dedicated to Robert Schumann. Staying in Eastern Europe, but with the loudest and most majestic possible ending, the final chord of the 1966 St. Luke Passion by the Polish composer Krzysztof Penderecki is a simultaneously terrifying and uplifting blaze of E major. The last chord of Penderecki's Luke Passion brings an hour and a quarter of tense and unresolved music making to a monumental close. Christoph Penderecki died recently, and his passing will leave a gaping hole in European musical culture. The opposite of a majestic ending is a fade-out. Gustav Holst created the first live fade-out at the end of the Planet Suite, written during the first half of the First World War. Premiered a few weeks before Armistice Day in 1918, the last movement of the planets, Neptune the Mystic, 
ends with upper voices repeating the same two chords over and over. You might be able to make out at the very bottom of the score the words this bar to be repeated until the sound is lost in the distance. This effect is best achieved by processing the chorus off the stage and away from the performance space until their singing is no longer audible. I personally had a difficult moment in the gallery of the Royal Albert Hall some years ago, trying simultaneously to conduct and hold open a particularly well-maintained fire door. Here is Neptune's fade out. the original live fade-out by Gustav Holst from over a century ago. The effect of a recorded fade-out had been achieved over two decades earlier. Spirit of 76 was recorded on the Berliner gramophone label on the 5th of December 1895 and issued on a 7-inch shellac disc. The recording recreated a street scene in Boston, Massachusetts in 1776, when General Washington rode by to the musical accompaniment of Yankee Doodle. By using shouting and cheering actors and a band of fifes and drums, the recording machine itself was moved towards and away from the players in order to create the effect of the band marching towards and away from the listener. The first recorded musical fade-out. Much later, George Olson's 1930 version of the Whiting and Harling song Beyond the Blue Horizon rose to number five in the US charts and featured an electronic fade-out at the end of the track to replicate the sound of a steam engine heading off into the distance. The genre of the electronic fade-out achieved musical sophistication in the 1960s with the Beatles. A Hard Day's Night of 1964 is known for its unique first chord, as I mentioned in musical openings two lectures back. But the song's 10-second fade-out ending is also important, not least because George Harrison riffs an arpeggiated subsection of the song's opening chord, on his newly acquired Rickenbacker 12 string. Like 
George Harrison's Rickenbacker guitar had first been offered to John Lennon, but Lennon passed it up because he thought, quite rightly, that Harrison would appreciate the instrument more. When the Beatles stopped touring in 1966, after their appearance at San Francisco's Candlestick Park, they took the opportunity to manufacture some interesting musical endings that would be difficult, nay impossible, to recreate in live performance. One such is Helter Skelter from the so-called White Album of 1968. Helter Skelter fades out and creates a false ending, followed by three seconds of silence, a long time in context, before the music returns for a further three quarters of a minute. The gesture was a cover-up for a glitch, but the producer, George Martin, wanted to save the material right at the end of the take, not least Ringo Starr manically shouting, I've got blisters on my fingers. So the track faded out to hide the glitch and faded back up again, eventually fading out quickly for a second time after Ringo's blistering outburst. Necessity is the mother of invention, an internal fade-out to cover an error. The first Beatles recording on the Apple label was Paul McCartney's single Hey Jude in 1968. A month before Helter Skelter was recorded, Hey Jude had been released. The coda of Hey Jude is a massive four minutes long, longer than the main body of the song itself, which is just over three minutes. The ending is regarded as iconic or irritating depending on your view of the Beatles, although with 8 million copies sold it's difficult not to classify Hey Jude and particularly its insistently repetitive coda as historically important. The long fade out reduces to nothing after beginning the 19th repetition of its refrain. Na, 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 na. In 1995, the three living members of the Beatles recomposed, remixed and remastered 
a demo tape that Lennon had made in 1977. The song had been planned as part of a piece of musical theatre called The Ballad of John and Yoko. John Lennon had been murdered on the Upper West Side of New York City in 1980. So 15 years after Lennon's death, George, Paul and Ringo brushed the song up as a tribute. After four minutes in the recomposed version, Free as a Bird reaches a natural ending. Yet after a couple of seconds of silence, a whimsical coda is bolted on, which features George Harrison strumming the ukulele and the voice of John Lennon played backwards. Heard forwards, Lennon can be heard saying, turned out nice again, a catchphrase of the comedian and ukulele player George Formby. John Lennon's song, Free as a Bird, reconstructed by the other three of the Fab Four. Franz Josef Haydn is known, along with Mozart, as one of the pillars of the classical style in music. Papa Haydn was known in his day as a musical prankster. The last movement of his string quartet, Opus 33, number two, is a fast and quirky rondo. Towards the end, a slow section infiltrates the final bars, only for the main motif to begin again. But then the theme of the movement is fragmented, phrase by phrase, and with long pauses between phrases. And after an even longer pause, the rondo starts up yet again, but stops after its opening phrase. It stops dead and incomplete. The end. Disturbingly funny it is too, so much so that this string quartet has become known as The Joke. Haydn's string quartet, The Joke, and it's still funny, particularly in live performance. Haydn's most famous musical ending, however, is the close of his Symphony No. 45, the so-called Farewell, which predates the Joke Quartet by nine years. In the autumn of 1772, Haydn's musicians at the Summer Palace of Esterhaza had been working without a break for longer than expected and many of them were missing their families, who were back in Eisenstadt. In the late 18th century, the journey from Esterhaza to Eisenstadt took a whole day. 
Prince Esterhazy was a relatively good employer, and he and Haydn had a close and productive working relationship. But the musicians were restless, so Haydn wrote a symphony whose ending stated the contractual grievance of his orchestra. In the last movement of the symphony, one by one, the players stopped playing, snuffed out their candles and left the stage. First oboe, then second horn, followed by bassoon. Then, as you can see on the score, the remaining players were gradually instructed to leave. Parte, the score says, each time. Second oboe and first horn, then double bass, then cellos, then third and fourth violins, and lastly, violas. That left only Haydn and one other violinist to complete the symphony. Pianissimo and muted at that. Prince Nicolaus apparently understood the gesture and the members of the orchestra were allowed to return to their pining wives and children. It's clever that an employment grievance became a musical gesture of artistic validity and one that's still being talked about two and a half centuries later. Fade out endings are one thing, but unexpected and perplexing endings are another. Mozart's musical joke would have shocked and amused in equal measure. A divertimento for two horns and strings of 1787, it parodies the work of incompetent composers, and right at the end, if the point hadn't already been made, Mozart makes the last three chords a harmonic farce. The horns alone complete the final movement sensibly in F major. The cellos and double basses play the final three chords in B flat major, the violas in E flat major, the second violins in A major, and the first violins in G major. The effect is harmonic carnage at the end of what the more mature of you might think of as the signature tune to BBC Television's Horse of the Year show. The end of Mozart's a musical joke, funny though not subtle. The American iconoclast Charles Ives created a similar polytonal effect at the close of his second symphony. Right at the end, a martial ending gives way to a very short and utterly cacophonous final chord, which comes out of nowhere. This is a musical raspberry. Symphony No. 2 by Charles Ives. In American parlance, a musical Bronx cheer. In a less cavalier and more traditional 20th century context is the Fifth Symphony by the Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. Sibelius's Fifth Symphony ends with six fortissimo forzando chords. In other words, as loud and heavily accented as possible. 
This is one of the most tense and dramatic endings in all of classical music. What contributes to the drama of the ending is that these six chords are spread over nine bars. So this page of music comprises mostly musical rests. Just one ninth of the score is orchestral sound. But as the French composer Claude Debussy so creatively observed, music is the space between the notes. Protracted ending of Sibelius's Fifth Symphony. I'd like to finish with an anecdote of my own. When I was a teenager, I studied the score of Berlioz's fantastic symphony in advance of a performance in Hanley Town Hall, conducted by a very young Simon Rattle. Two things impressed me. First of all, Simon Rattle, not least because he conducted the piece from memory and I knew just how complicated and detailed Berlioz's score is. Secondly, I was impressed by the ending of the whole piece. In studying the score, I perceived the very last chord as a loud chord played by the full orchestra. What blew my ears away in performance was Berlioz's expert orchestration. The chord begins as a full sound from all of the instruments, but as the chord is held, so the sustained nature of the brass dominates the sound and the piece ends in a blaze of brass dominated glory. That carefully calculated orchestral effect had eluded my teenage inner ear when looking at the score. The last chord looked like one thing, a loud chord for full orchestra, but it sounded like another, a chord that became scintillatingly brassy. And over 40 years after first hearing it, this remains my favourite musical ending. Finish it, Sir Simon. <laughs>